Welcome everyone to the 54th episode of the New Gen Mindset Podcast. I'm uh, Dan Kozell here with Nick Tartaglia. What's up, Nick? What's up, Don? It was uh, it was another interesting day on the markets today. We also have earnings this week. Um, yeah, that's uh, and then you had the thing with the Trump, the the whole uh, run up uh, on the, the SPAC, the, the 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 SPAC mania that's got everybody uh, throw. It's like the carrot stick, uh, the carrot on the stick theory right now. The shiny mm-hmm. object and Bitcoin is rallying, but um, it's as if know. the FOMO, the FOMO sentiment is back in the market. They're you know whatever with everybody. Like if you talk to retail people, especially with the younger guys, everybody's talking about inflation now, and they're they don't understand inflation, but they know that somehow it destroys their 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 currency. So they're all panicking. They're all rushing their capital. They're all figure, trying to figure out, okay, how can we get money fast? So it's like, is there going to be another like big FOMO type of momentum-driven market coming at us? Well, I think the other thing too is just that's just an example of broken psychology. And um, I guess it's almost a great segue into what we're going to be talking about today because we do have a special guest with us uh, today. Um, he's in San Juan right now. But um, quick little intro for this gentleman. Um, he was working originally with the legendary speculator investor, Doug Casey. He was one of his prodigies at Casey Research for almost 14 years uh, until about early 2018. Uh, by 2007, he was writing and making investment recommendations in uh, Doug Casey's flagship newsletter, The International Speculator. Love that name, by the way. Um, and now he's bringing his experience, his connection, his deal flow directly to you, uh, the curious investor or people like myself and Nick without the barrage of marketing hype used by large publishers. I love this because there's so much hype and I'm not going to name names because who knows, we might have them on here one day, but um, there's a lot of pump and dumping happening right now. And this is what we're going to talk about, but welcome to the new gen mindset podcast, Lobo Tigre. Thank you very much. And appreciate that intro in particular, because boy, the, the uh, marketing machines are just printing money left and right with all the exciting headlines. So it is very topical. Before, before we get into the whole conversation as to what's been going on right now uh, in the market, um, how did you get to this point? What brought you to be in your, on your website, Louis James, but you, Lobo Tigre, what brought you to this point? Uh, so my actual little name is Lobo Tigre, which is uh, a bit odd, I know. So I was using the Louis James name at Casey Research, which sounded much more normal and, and good for a financial publication of such stature. Um, but when I went independent, I, I really wanted to build everything on 100% transparency, and it didn't seem right to be using a nom de plume. So I, I came out of the closet and my mentors told me that's a huge mistake. Everybody knows you as Louis James. So we kept Louis James as the brand, as the name of the company. Um, but, you know, I came out of the closet, as it were, with my, with my real name. Digression. How I got started was as the black sheep of the family. I'm one of them rabble-rousing, atheist, anarchist, troublemongers out there. I, I don't wear black capes or anything like that. But I believe in principles. And principles, if adhered to, tend to lead one to positions on the extremes, not in the middle. And that's where I found Doug Casey. So again, the answer to the question is I had no experience in this sector. I, I knew nothing about geology really other than I liked rocks and collected them as a kid and I knew nothing about finance. I didn't know what a warrant was when I started in this business. But Doug knew me as a smart, hardworking guy who you could trust with whatever was given to him. And that was, that was the basis. He just, he knew me. I, I have to say it was not what I knew, but who I knew. And I like to hope that I learned a thing or two since then, kept the job by, by competence rather than connections. But that's how I got started. It's the honest answer. Just Doug and I were friends. They needed a writer and off we went. To play off of that, could I ask you, who are some of the people that kind of shaped your investment or economic philosophy? I really came at it green, green, green. I, I knew nothing. Um, so it was all within the sector. I wasn't already an investor who then got into uh, metals and mining and that sort of thing. Uh, I, I did collect coins as a kid. I did read Ayn Rand and had a you know, libertarian uh, you know, affinity for hard money to begin with. So that was already in place and very much something I had in common with Doug. But so, so 
got to give credit starting at square one, Doug, he pretty much taught me not everything I know because I had other mentors, but he was the source and the foundation of my financial education. After that, it would be Rick Rule. Rick was very generous with his time. As you probably know, he loves to mentor. Mm -hmm. uh, 20 years ago, he wasn't doing so much of it, but he was very generous with uh, me and others at the Casey organization. And then after that, I, I would have to go with books that I read, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It was such a simple concept, had a huge impact on me. Some of the self-help stuff that people dismiss so easily, Napoleon Hill and so on, very powerful stuff. It's basically pop psychology, but that doesn't make it worthless. Um, and then some of the classics, Ben Graham's Intelligent Investor is, yeah, I don't know how old that is, 70, 80 years, but it's still spot on. You, you look at his descriptions of uh, investors that he meets or examples, you see the exact same thing today. Human nature hasn't changed. And that's really what he was writing about. So those kinds of things had a very strong influence on me. We, we like to, obviously, Nick and I are, we're a bit of a bookworm too, in terms of finding you know different ideas. I mean, I've got a copy of The Intelligent Investor on my desk right now, and it just sits there. I don't, it's the only book I actually keep on my desk. And I don't have it with the rest of my bookshelves, uh, with the rest of the books of my bookshelves. But um I want to just talk about what's happening right now. Um, and I think this is really the key uh, to understanding the psychology as to the behavior, as to, you know, all these marketing machines that are out there, but really from your side, um, could you just tell us like, what, what's the fed really doing right now? <laughs> and to ask a question on that question, I want to say is, do you think the fed is, you think they're lying or they really are not aware of the long-term consequences of their policies? It's, it's, let's take the second question first. It's very funny that you asked that because I basically asked that same question of Ron Paul Friday night at the New Orleans Investment Conference. He was the keynote speaker at the banquet and there was an open mic Q&A. And he has that famous story about confronting Alan Greenspan with a copy of his article on gold as money in the objectivist newsletter and Greenspan sort of whispering, I, I still believe everything I wrote in there. Um, and so I wanted to ask Ron Paul what he thought about the current crop of the powers that be and whether they had any awareness at all. And unfortunately, uh, he couldn't hear the question very well. And he, he told the, the Alan Greenspan story again, some other interesting stories about Ronald Reagan and whatnot. Um, but I didn't get an answer to my question. So I have to go with my gut, you know, as much as we like to make fun of these people and so on, they're not, they're not idiots. They're not, you know, drooling morons. They didn't get where they are by being entirely stupid. And that's actually a criticism mm. because I, I cannot conceive that they know what they know and they're as smart as they are and they don't know what they're doing or what the impact is. I think you get somebody like Janet Yellen saying yesterday that, you know, there's no, no danger of losing control on inflation. How could the Secretary of Treasury say anything other than that? I mean, she literally cannot say anything else because it'll cause a panic and all the problems they're trying to avoid. And I think that applies to, you know, Powell and any of these guys. They float trial balloons with gentle wording here and there to see if, um, you know, it, if the market's going to panic or anything like that. But the... Um, the plain fact of the matter is that they have no choice about what, you know, how much they can say. And I do apologize, but I have to pause for just a second. Apparently uh, my wife has locked herself out of the room and I need yeah, to pull okay, Don't worry, don't worry. Well, we'll, we'll be continuing with part two of that question. Sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. can segue to part two if you, if you remind me. Yeah. So he, he all the part of it was just talking about the Fed part, like like where do you think the Fed's at? What what's what's happening with the Fed? Like you know we have the taper talks that's supposed to be coming out, but then you also have the fact that unemployment is not where they thought where it is where they thought it would be, and that was a huge impact for them. And then you have well inflation's running hot. When they said first inflation's not an issue, then it would be transitory, and now it appears like inflation really is sticky and permanent. So it's like. You know, it's as if they're playing face or they're playing politics rather than really just being honest with the market. You've got it. I, as we were just saying, I don't think they can be. I think they have to massage everything they say. It's all geared towards not what's true or even what's necessary. It's how do we do the least harm possible? How do we avoid a panic or a meltdown? 
And to go to the initial question of, you know, what's going on, where are they at? I really do think they are stuck between that rock and the hard place. I do not see a viable solution for them. I mean, at the best they can possibly hope for, I think, is to kick the can down the road a little bit longer. I don't know how long they can do that. And I got, I got to tell you, you know, I could be wrong. After 2008, 2009, everything blew up in such a gigantic way. It, I, I couldn't see then how they could possibly stuff the genie back in the bottle and kick the can down the road. Now, here we are, right, you know, 13 years later, and I was wrong. They, you know, that, that's, I could say I wasn't wrong. It's still part two of that same crisis. But honestly, you know, more than 10 years later, you know, that was wrong. They did, they did put it off. So just because I can't see how they could do it, that doesn't mean it can't be done. I'm once bitten, twice shy on that. But the, but the honest answer to the question is, I don't see how they can. I, you know, it's there. And the unraveling of the transitory yarn is really interesting. So let me put it this way. Rather than say the sky is falling, this is it. We're going to hyperinflation. Head to your bunker with your gold and silver coins and your or crypto hard drive for after the crash. Um, I, I'm not going to predict that. I'm, I think that a rosy, happy, happy, joy, joy outcome is extremely unlikely. I, I just don't see that path. So my, my base case expectation is for stagflation. Now, right now, that's, that's the most popular term in financial media. Everybody's talking about it. But I started talking about this after the COVID shutdowns happened. I was talking about this a year ago or more because it was, it was obvious to me then that there would be economic knock-on effects. You can't just shut off the engine of the world like John Galt and then turn it back on again and think everything's going to be fine. So at the same time, there's all this money printing. And so between the fiscal and monetary policy and then the enduring, you know, we can't know in advance, but the enduring knock-on effects of this global economic shutdown that looked like a recipe for stagflation to me. And I think that's where we're at. I think that's the rock and the hard place for the Fed. And it really is a hard place because their models, there's no stagflation in that model. We want inflation, inflation, you know, poor Mario Draghi never got his beloved 2% inflation in Europe. And now there it is after he left, poor guy, he missed it. You know, why, why do central bankers say, oh, we want this inflation we want? Well, because in their models, inflation is a sign of growth. You have inflation because you have a healthy economy growing. That's how they're marks. And so if that's wrong, if you have inflation and no growth or weak growth, their tools don't work. They, they really are stuck. So, sorry, I'm waxing rhapsodic here. No, it's good. I don't want to call for the end of the world, but that's how I see it. They are stuck. Mm -hmm. And I think the best we can hope for is muddling along in some stagflationary environment for some years to come. The the biggest uh, debate right now, too, uh, I, I would actually I don't even know if it's a debate or not, but um, from a economic and from a taxation standpoint, inflation is actually a hidden tax. Mm -hmm. um, and this is kind of the debate that's been going on between, I guess, the Austrian econo economists and the Keynesian economists. Right. So when we hear the officials uh, or, you know, the IMF or, or, you know, the Fed come out and talk about how inflation is really uh, a tool, like you just said, for them to, to continue uh, growth in the economy. I'm pretty convinced, and Nick and I, Nick could probably attest to this, um, that a vast majority or a significant portion, not a majority, but maybe a significant portion of people don't see inflation as an actual advantage. It's actually a taxation on everybody. I'm curious to know what your take is on, on that particular uh, debate. Yeah, well, clearly I come down on the inflation is a tax and it's highly destructive. It's a draining of value. I know the numbers right in front of me, but even if the Fed were to achieve its nirvana of stable 2% inflation, what that does to your money, if you have a hundred bucks and it deflates at 2% per year, in just 10 years, you know, your 100 bucks turns into something like 80. And after 20 years, it's something like 60. And that's never mind if we have a symmetrical, you know, if we're at 5% or something like right now, your, your 100 bucks turns into 40 bucks in 20 years. It, it really does take money out or the purchasing power out of the people's pockets. And that is a taxation. And I, I have very direct personal experience and feelings about this. I'm, I'm not quite so old to have been an economist writing about this in the 1970s. I was just a kid, but my 
quick version of the story is that my first awareness of what inflation was, was in Mexico. We were in Mexico at the time and I had made a bunch of money at a garage sale and I was feeling really rich. I had 500 pesos. Wow, that was so much money. And I showed my mom proudly how much money I had made at this garage sale. And she says, well, what are you going to do with it? Um, and I said, well, I'll just hold on to it. And she's like, well, you got you to gotta worry about inflation then. Inflation, what's that? Yeah. And she explained to me about how money over time becomes worth less and less. It purchases less. And I was horrified. I was like, what? what you? you know, like it's money. How could, you know, how could it, it just felt like this violation? I had all this money and it was going to just evaporate on me. Um, so the solution at the time in Mexico was to buy dollars. And this was in the 70s. And then we came back from Mexico to the U.S. And then I found out that the, there was in high inflation in the U.S. So this dollar, this safe haven that was going to save me from inflation was doing the same thing. And this is, this is leading up to the big spike in late 70s and the Hunt Brothers and all that stuff. So I bought silver. I, I was just a kid, but I was so angry. Like I was pissed off. I had worked hard for this money and I was mowing lawns, doing all this stuff. And the, the government was going to print more and, and steal the value right out of my pocket. So that was, and this is before I read Ayn Rand or anything else. This is just, you know, what do I do? What do I do? Sorry, no Bitcoin at the time. And I went straight to silver because that's what I could buy with my lawnmower money and my garage sale money. And, you know, um, but I remember that vividly to this day, like this, this hero, this savior, the dollar who protected me from inflation turned out to have clay feet and betrayed me. And ever since then, I've been a hard money advocate. It's so, it's so fascinating because I feel like everybody who wants to attain a certain amount of realistically net worth, right. Goes through a little bit of an epiphany at times for the longest time when you're a young child, you're always just like, well, money is money. Right. But what I think what you realized in that moment was money is actually a tool and it needs to be used properly. You're either buying assets or it's being deteriorated every single mm -hmm. day. Right. So I, I just thought that was really cool because, you know, my, my epiphany was really, I think about six years ago out of just starting university, it actually hit me. And I said, wow, investing, you actually need to start doing that. So um, perfect segue into the next topic was just your investment uh, sort of track record. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the website here. You've realized about 79.6% realized gains. Uh, that's sort of the average of all the completed trades you, you've done. Talk about that. Like, tell us a little bit more about that and like what you had to go through to kind of just get to get to that level because that's very impressive. Uh, well, thank you. And <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting. This too is sort of work in progress. One of the things that my mentors taught me as a speculator is that you know, Doug Casey used to say that it was better to risk ten percent of your assets for a hundred percent gains than to risk a hundred percent of your assets for ten percent gains. Because if the market turns against you, things go wrong, you know, you're just shooting for these measly little gains and then you could risk capital losses and you know, whereas if you accept that the markets are speculative and really at the very least since Lehman Brothers, all investors are speculators, they just the smart ones realize it. So, so why not, you know, swing for the bleachers every once in a while. And the way Rick Rule puts it is that if you, if you shoot for 10 baggers, you are going to lose money on more of your speculations than you will make. Like more than 50% of your stocks will, will cost you money. You'll lose money. But the 10 baggers, the 20 baggers, the mythical 100 baggers, they actually do exist. And those will more than offset the losses. So your, your average, even with the 10 baggers, your average gain isn't going to be a thousand percent, but your losses and your gains, you'll do better than money in the bank. And, and that is actually what we achieved at Casey Research. My track record while there with the international speculator was the last published number was 18 and a half percent per year, including the crash of 2008, the meltdowns, all the stuff. That was the, the average over that, those 14 years that I was there. And so that's better than, you know, a, a CD in the bank or something like that. 18 and a half percent isn't bad. Uh, what I, what I'm publishing now is not the same because really Nobody buys and sells all their stocks on January 2nd and December 31st. So these yearly numbers, they're artificial. And the other thing I discovered is that um, since, you know, if you swing for the bleachers and you get your 10 baggers, but you lose money in a bunch, your average is nowhere near that 10 bagger. It's somewhere in between. And I realized that, you know what, I think I can do better. 
I, I don't have to swing for the bleachers all the time. And if, and the way to get a 10 bagger is, is to go really early in the speculation. You have to bet on something before it's obvious, before it's happening, before the discovery, if it's a, if it's mineral exploration and then hope to get lucky. And I hate investing on hope. That's not a, a formula for me. And after all these years, I just, I guess I, maybe I'm arrogant, but I think I'm a pretty good stock picker. I think I can, I don't have to lose on most of my bets. I can win on most of my bets. And maybe I have fewer 10 baggers. I'm not going to be the guy who gets all the 10 baggers, 20 baggers. But you know what? I'm losing far fewer times. My, my track record is about to change because I just sold a stock today and more on that in the future. But the published track record you're looking at, because you know, I haven't, it just closed today. I have to post this. Is out of the 17 completed trades, 15 are in the black. Nice. So this is what I'm talking about. So this this is a departure from what Rick and Doug taught me. I'm I'm actually arrogant enough, if you will, cocky Confident. enough to Confident. try to win. There you go. I, I'm actually trying to win more often than I lose, and to make those wins big enough to matter. So what we have there is not a theoretical model portfolio or an annualized, you know, potent, you know, theoretical game. I mean, nobody nobody realizes that. What you have in that track record is my actual results. Those are all completed trades till today. And it's not, you know, based on a theoretical, you know, $10,000 investment. It's, it's the actual money I put in, in. I put screenshots of the brokerage orders and the fees that I paid and everything. So that's how I'm doing it this time around. The track record is actual closed trades. The current portfolio is averaging around 50%. And that includes some winners and some losers. Um, that's not public because obviously you see the portfolio you, you have on my stock picks uh, that's for subscribers but so sorry a bit of a long-winded answer but the answer to your question how do i do that is that i've actually departed from what my mentors taught me i am trying to pick winners more often than losers and make them you know big enough to matter and that's not easy and you forego you know some of the exciting things of that early stage exploration, you know, swing for the bleachers. But I just, I felt really bad over the years for the people who lost big, you know, they, you know, there's these, you know, the bell curve, we, we averaged 18 and a half percent, but there's probably a, a number of people out there that picked every loser I ever wrote about and they hate me. <laughs> and there's some people who picked every winner on the high end of the bell curve and they love me. And, and the people who lost money, I really feel for them. And, and, I, I take that personally. So my new business, I'm actually trying to do my very damnedest to avoid losing money for my readers. And that's it's, you know, it's Warren Buffett's rule number one, don't lose money. I am trying to combine that with what I learned from Rick and Doug about successful speculation. That's how sure, I do it. And I'm sure that in your at least now more than a lot before, more before, you, there's a lot more political risk involved in your analysis from a macro standpoint, because of how much more they're impacting the markets with interest rates or taper. You have China that's kind of like causing a lot of conflict around the world. So you, you have a potential deglobalization effect that might be impacting the world. Uh, so like what typically before and moving forward, like what, what are the typical types of like niches or industries or cycles that you typically like to, to pay attention to or really, you know, focus on? Okay, well, there's sort of two directions with that political risk and, mm -hmm. you know, market sectors and what I like to focus on. There's always political risk and particularly, I guess, the answer to part two is I'm a metals and mining guy. Mm -hmm. I could see investing in some killer DeFi app if somebody could really convince me that was going to be the cat's meow. Um, but I'm so incompetent in that area to judge. I'm, I mean, I'm not a programmer. And I can't tell if they have the right solution that's going to, you know, looks like a better mousetrap, but, but so did that other one that didn't work. So, you know, that's, that's tricky for me. And in, in conceptually, I could see going there. In a market crash, I could see buying blue chip stocks while they're cheap. But what I know and what I specialize in is metals and mining within the commodity space. And the good news there, directly relevant to your question, is that those markets are highly cyclical. You know, you've, you've heard this before, I'm sure. It's, it's not a revelation on my part. So, you know, for the patient discipline speculator, that's fantastic. When they cycle down, you can buy. When they cycle up, you can take profits. 
And by the way, people hate it when I talk about the taking profits part. You know, uranium's up to fifty dollars, mm-hmm. and people are like, "Yeah, it's going to one hundred <laughs> and forty. And I'm saying, you know what? You know, we bought when it was twenty-five. There's nothing yeah. wrong with taking a bit of profits when it's fifty. Who knows what will totally. happen next? And boy, people don't want to hear that. Mm-hmm. But that's how it works. These yep. markets are cyclical. I mean, it's it's not rocket science. It's buy low, sell high. So th- that's the beauty of it. Is that that cyclicality is pretty predictable. And whereas, you know, if you're, if you're in the dating scene, oh, how predictable, that's, that's bad. You don't want to be the predictable guy. But for investors, that's predictable. That's the holy grail. Mm. Pattern of cycles, 100%. So like what typically, what, what like, if you were to talk about the commodities now or the specific niches within the mining space, where where's your mind at? Where do you think there's opportunity? Sure. So I have to say, and, and my gold bug friends, my silver bug friends, my uranium bug friends, my are there such a thing as copper bugs? I don't know. Yeah. But they don't like it when I answer the question. But the, the answer is we are not in the early stealth phase of the market. I mean, that's just a fact. You know, the mainstream media is writing about this. You've got copper near all-time highs, not mm-hmm. near all-time lows or even multi-decade lows. I mean, so you, you can't call copper a buy cheap, you know, buy low opportunity. You know, um, same actually for gold and silver, as beat up as silver is, mm-hmm. and the silver bucks are pulling their hair out about how silver is so underperformed and so unloved. At 24, 25 bucks an ounce, it's not cheap. And the better miners make money at those levels, let alone 1800 for gold and uranium. Right? Okay, uranium arguably is the most, most undervalued because even at $50, very, very few of the miners can make money at that level. A few yeah. of the lowest cost producers can, but not enough to supply the growing demand in the industry. Actually, not, a, not enough to supply the current industry, never mind the growing demand. Mm. So I, I do think uranium has to go higher, but unlike some of the others, I don't think it has to go a lot higher. I think, I think it goes to 60, 70 easy. And then we may see some of the investment pounds taken off the market, come back in the market. You'll definitely see the the idled capacity starting to come back online, and the the junior producers, the people that have projects that that worked, they're going to want to bring them online. So, I'm sorry, I may have lost the thread of your question. What I'm oh. saying about the commodity space is, one, the money printing, the fiscal and monetary policy is bullish for all commodities, hmm. but we're not early stage. And you have to be selective and you have to be realistic about your expectations within what's coming ahead in the stagflationary environment we talked about. I, I really like the fact that you brought up uranium because I'd actually, I bought uranium stocks uh, last year, literally in November. Uh, and I've been good for you. Wow. November. That's perfect timing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I, I was just looking at it too, because I was like, wait a minute, if spot uranium prices are at $24, or $23, but most of the miners, their cost of production is like 50 or 55 or 60. It's like the only way, like, and the other thing too, and this is sort of where um, people love me when I say this, and then I've got a group of people that absolutely despise me when I say this, is the fact that uranium is actually green energy. Um, It can power five metropolises the size of Dallas, Texas, right? That's how powerful this commodity is. But we've run into this situation where, and I'm curious to know what your opinion on this is, but we've run in this situation where the sort of climate activists who don't necessarily understand how economics work are calling for the abolition of fossil fuels, getting rid of nuclear energy, but then they fail to realize, well, you can't just abolish something when demand is so high or demand is going to continue to go up and you're limiting supply. Just so, to get that output, you need to increase your supply correct. of those those specific commodities right. to get what you want. Co- co- correct. Absolutely, so, so. we're on the same page there. You know, they're they're calling for the elimination of Plan A without Plan B being in place, right. or, or there's a vague notion that windmills and solar panels will be Plan B, and maybe in 50 years they will, but 50 years doesn't help us now. So if you know, just look at what's happening right now. You've got even California asking the federal government for permission to burn more gas to, to power, you know, keep from brownouts rolling. And even though we call it clean natural gas, you know, somehow it's natural, so it must be good. It's still got carbon in it. You can burn the cleanest natural gas you want in the world, you know, not a 
speck of sulfur in it and it all has sulfur in it. But imagine that it had no sulfur in it. You're still putting CO2 in the atmosphere if you burn that stuff. So California is happy to pull the plug on its last nuclear power plant, which puts nothing in the air, mm. atmosphere and, and burn gas and put CO2. I mean, it just, it makes no sense. And I think that people are starting to realize I, there are more and more people that are begrudgingly starting to say, you know, we need to reconsider nuclear. It was, um, it was actually something that started in the early aught aughts and was derailed by Fukushima, of course. Uh, but that's coming back. And I think it's bigger and stronger than what I saw in that early, you know, pre-Fukushima rally. There was, there was um, what's his name? The guy from Greenpeace. There was this one lone wolf out there, Patrick Michaels. I'm, I'm not sure I'm remembering the name, who was talking about we need to reconsider nuclear energy. It was, it was like this one guy. Now it's a whole host of environmentalists. And, and there's people out there who, who listen to AOC or whoever, and they think we're all going to die if we don't stop admitting co2 like within the next nine years so if you believe that at the same time you know people are not going to stop using energy i mean you may decide that you're going to go live in a tent and keep each other warm by body heat alone or something like that but the people in china are not going to do that and the people in northern climes are not going to do that they're not going to volunteer to freeze to death so you can meet your your co2 goals so you've got california burning more you've got china burning more coal you've got yeah. germany you know which pulled the plug on its power plants nuclear power plants and is you know strip mining coal now like gangbusters um i i think it's so obvious here that this makes no sense i mean we're 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 burning more hydrocarbons putting more co2 in the air because we're trying to eliminate that it, it makes mm. so little sense i actually am extremely bullish but here's the thing Sorry, I won't talk forever. All of this is a tailwind for uranium. Uranium yeah. was already on the rise before this. The current nuclear fleet, alone building anymore, already it will be undersupplied without more mine production. Like mine production has been less than uh, actual consumption per year for many years. Yeah. But we had the secondary supply from Fukushima and whatnot. That having been dried up, um, you know, we don't actually need this green uh mantra to push it any further but i think it will i mean i i just i think it will with gusto and i'm, I'm very bullish on this but that doesn't mean uranium has to go to 500 a pound or anything no. crazy correct it, it it means that it rises until new production is incented sufficient to meet mm -hmm. demand and it may overshoot because commodities do that a lot but i'd be very wary of investing on the thesis that it has to go to 150 or whatever and stay there i, I don't think it does um, doesn't mean I'm a bear. It just means, you know, hold on to your expectations. Don't don't forget to take profits if you've got a big win. But that, that, yeah, go ahead, Dan. I, I was just going to say it's exactly correct because when I originally bought it, and I'm sure you, when you bought it too, Lobo, as part of your portfolio, is like you had a thesis of the cost of production. I think that was just the main thesis. And talking to more people who had invested in this space, they came to the same conclusion which was exactly just that entire basic, you know, math, like economic equation. Supply and demand. It was that and the technicals. And I'm not a Correct. TA guy. I, I don't do lots of lines and charts and things, but I have to say the fundamentals for uranium, you know, they've been positive for the entire 20 years that I've been in this business. Correct. And they got derailed by Fukushima, but the fundamentals were still there even then. And a lot of uranium bulls were arguing based on the fundamentals, you know, 2010, 2012, 2014, and it just never went anywhere, 2015. Um, so what, what really got me back in, and I, I had been bullish before, then I turned bearish, and then I turned bullish again. And what got me to buy uranium, and I started loading up in 2018, was when the technicals showed, you know, that famous two steps forward, one step back, and you had that series of higher lows. And all my TA guys who are you know, chartists, they were saying that that series of higher lows was really important. So now I had my fundamentals, which I believe for a long time, confirmed with technicals that were a solid upward trend. And that remains the case today. You know, even, even when, you know, uranium hit 52 and pulled back recently, you know, that was actually just pulling back to trend. So, it, sorry, I just wanted to clarify. It wasn't just the fundamentals. It was that plus the technicals I, no, in this case. That's why Nick and I love moving averages on charts because they always guide 
the the possibility of a pullback or maybe a jump up depending on what the fundamental story is but it's it's very interesting i i, I got we, we we believe nuclear has a place on this planet mm-hmm. and it could actually be it's much more environmentally friendly than coal obviously you have the waste issue that's another thing but again and the cost of capital too I, i'm pretty sure to create a, a nuclear uh, a nuclear reactor, it's about two billion dollars of capex just to start, right? Um, some something absurd like that. Um, Nick, you can, question? No, I was just gonna say like you can make this the 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 thesis of uranium with the whole uh, supply demand issue and the lack of production and you need a higher you need a higher cost is also the same thesis you could also make also for copper, where you know for decades yes. you've had. Uh, you know, it's a very similar thesis. And I, I like Dan did the, uh, is more the uranium. I've been in copper for a couple of years based on the exact same thesis. You know, you have the supply issue, massive produ- output of this uh, green expansion. Uh, you need a higher price to even incentivize the juniors or the big guys to go and get more. Uh, and also copper and uranium seems to have a very similar thesis. Well, they're both energy metals. Mm. It's one way to look at it. Though. <laughs> it's, it's kind of interesting. And there's another similarity here in that both are essential, irreplaceable. I mean, there's a little bit of substitution. You can substitute aluminum for copper in a few applications, but actually not a lot. Um, and it turns out it's a fire hazard if you do it in some. <laughs> but so they're energy metals and that the uh, supply and demand fundamentals are bullish for both of them before you even had the green thing on top. You had the green thing on top and it's you know even more so. Actually, even if that wasn't there, even if the government stopped mandating EVs and, and it all boiled, you know, blew away, you would still need higher uranium and copper prices. But there is a difference, though, and I think it's a very important one in that we have in the uranium space, we have idle capacity, sort of like OPEC. You know, yeah. they voluntarily dial back on production to push prices up and they want to be careful not to ramp up too soon and shoot themselves in the foot on the price. They want to they, they want to keep prices high as they ramp up. And I think that's the same thing in the uranium space, you know, because Adamprom, the world's largest and lowest yep. cost producer, it's not a recommendation. I'm just stating that as a fact. You know, they have guided that they don't plan to increase their output until 2023. Now, that sounds an awful lot like a central banker, so I'm not sure I believe that. If prices are really high, you know, it's $50, I can see them saying, yeah, there's no hurry. Uh, but if, you know, 60, 70, the higher the price goes, the more the incentive for them to say, you know what, you know, maybe we could produce a few more pounds here. It's in so, their best interest to keep prices high too, right? It is, yeah. but it's, it's, it's also money on the table Correct. and you don't know how, how long or how high it's going to be. So what I'm saying though, is that there is idle capacity now that if the decision is made now, yes, it takes a few months to bring it online. But it's there and it can be. I mean, it's not like we don't have enough uranium. Whereas with copper, we don't have enough copper. And you know, there are some people that are projecting it may go into a slight surplus next year and then go into deficit again. And other, other analysts have different charts and things. But even assuming the rosiest production outlooks, that's a, that's a temporary blip. There is a structural long-term supply deficit in the copper market. And unlike uranium, you know, it, <laughs> it's not like there's idle capacity here that's just waiting to be brought back online. And even when you do, in uranium, you have a lot of these in situ mines, the, you know, including Kazatomprom and some of the others, where you pump solutions through the ground. So you don't actually have to build a giant underground infrastructure. You, you pump the uranium out of the ground. So that's much quicker. Whereas that's, that's extremely rare in copper. There are a few like that, but they're small and they're rare. Most of the copper comes from these gigantic copper mines that take years to build. And that's after years to permit. And that's after years to discover. And so, I, I mean, that, that's an intractable problem. So I'm actually extremely bullish on copper, as I said earlier. And it may sound like I'm contradicting myself because I'm saying at, you know, at, at high $4 prices that it's not cheap. Well, those don't have to contradict themselves. It can go higher. But you know what? Even if it doesn't go higher, even if this supply constraint just means that we stay in the in the four to five dollar range, I think it goes to six and maybe stays there for a while. But let's say it stays where it is now. That's a fantastic price. Most of these mothballed copper projects that I'm talking about that take 10 years to develop, um, you know, they're studied at three dollar plus copper. So they, they gush cash at these levels. So 
you know, investors like it when the price is going up. You know, they want to see copper going up, gold going up, uranium going up, whatever. But for the actual business of mining, the current price is just fine. All it has to do is not tank. And these guys can make tons of money. And the companies that have these assets that develop them can deliver for shareholders. Speaking of tanking, um, no pun intended, but last year oil tanked to uh, <laughs> levels we've never seen in history. Um, and I remember the day so perfectly. It was like April. It was April 22nd, 2020. I'm sitting, I'm working and I'm, you know, I got my charts open and I'm, I've got CNBC on and like the whole world kind of just stopped. They're like, they're literally paying people $37 to get rid of your oil. And I, I remember in that time, like advisors, people were invested in oil. I had one guy that, you know, he said I had sunk, you know, 50% of my portfolio in oil. He was just like, I went home that night and I cried and I go, wow. And then look what happened. Fast forward to this year. It's the best performing sector uh, on the TSX. It's the best performing sector, I think, on the, on, in, in the US too, right? With XOM and XOP just taking it to the top. So, um, And you have is, Biden asking OPEC to increase their, their, uh, their production because they, they cap their own production. Correct. So, so I guess from, from a cycles, because we're on the topic of commodities right now, um, you know, does oil still have that longevity that copper has barely scratched the surface of, if that makes sense? Yeah, no, I, I understand the question. And yes and no. I mean, it's really interesting that oil prices are as high as they are with still the travel industry under pressure and some of the typical demand you know, in question. It's, it's quite striking. Uh, but you know that that time last year you talked about it, it was so impressive, even though I'm not, I mean, I will dabble in the oil patch, but it's not my number one specialty. Even I was tempted to get into the oil patch because you know, obviously oil prices can't stay negative. And you know, that that happened so fast. It was here today, gone tomorrow. But even then afterwards, it was obvious that oil prices couldn't stay that low for long. The, the electric cars, even on the most rosiest assumptions, depending on your perspective, even on the highest adoption rate assumptions, it's still going to take years and years and years before we don't need gas for cars anymore or diesel. Years and years and years, decades. Um, so if you're cutting production for something that still isn't replaced, I think that's very bullish. Now, now there's this, there's this dance going back and forward here where you increase production, but demand falls off. You know, you have more COVID shutdowns or you have actually very significant penetration of the electric cars in that space. As, as we speak, there was news today of um, one of the big rental, maybe it was Hertz. I don't know. Oh, one of the big yes. rental Correct. agencies yeah, it was ordered 10,000 100, new tests. 100,000, yeah. No, 100,000. Yeah. 100,000. It's a ton of cars, mm. or tons, a lot of cars. Um, so this is happening and here, but here's the thing, you know, I, I don't know the oil patch well enough. And I don't think even the experts who do could give you a solid prediction. Here's what's going to be six months, 12 months, 18 months, and so on. But I think that the ESG pressure to curtail production is so strong that I, I think we will reach a point where supply has been severely constrained and the demand has not yet gone away. So I could actually see oil, you know, up, down, underperform for a while. And then we get to a point where there's just actually not enough of it. We've stopped pumping. You know, we've exceeded to the stop now demands. We've stopped pumping and there aren't enough electric cars. And, and so I could actually see this anti-oil uh, agenda pushing oil prices to 200 bucks higher when it, when it actually becomes supply constraint. Exactly one things I don't know, I, I'd probably not right away. But in the, in the next few years, I can see a scenario where supply has been cut back prematurely and oil prices just go nuts. Uh, that's something I'll be watching for. I'm not, I'm not ready to buy everything in the oil patch on that basis yet. But if I see that fuse is lit, I, I definitely intend to go there. But the, um, the, the whole expansion for, let's say, the green initiative and the ESG stuff, <clears throat> all the metals that we need just to produce that outcome, solar panel, renewable, all of it, the amount of metals we need to come out of the ground requires a massive increase in the, the infrastructure from mining to machinery, to trains, to, uh, to ships, of which most of it entirely depends on oil. So that alone should put a massive amount of pressure on that side. 
Uh, it's a cost. You, it, I mean, you're, you're right. And it is, it is a factor. And when oil prices are very high, if you're looking at miners, you want to, it's, it's something to consider. Look at uh, mines that are in remote areas where they're running diesel generators to power the mine. Uh, that will cut into margins big time if oil prices go up. Whereas if you have a mine near a hydropower station in, in Quebec or something like that, and they have low cost of energy, then they'll do better. But commodities tend to move together. With these, you've heard of these commodity super cycles. So yeah, they tend exactly. to cycle up together. So the same factors that push oil prices higher tend to push copper and gold prices higher as well. So, yeah, you, know, you need to look at that. But, you know, if you've got a higher oil price and you've got a much higher copper or gold price, then the miner can still come out ahead. Yeah, so it balances it, it, out. It, not always, but it, it is something okay. to beware of. But it is, mm -hmm. it's a thesis that I've heard in previous cycles where people said, oh, beware of the higher oil prices. And, you know, that, you know that's going to hurt the miners. And it just seems not to play out the way the hype, you know, would lead people to think. Mm. So do it's you believe that there is a super cycle now? I do, um, but I define it differently. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how other people define it. What they mean by super cycle is not clear when you hear this from the talking heads on financial media. The way I think of it is, is, or the pattern that I have seen, is that the prices tend to correlate highly, and they tend to move in long multi-year waves. And, and even, even you might think that the monetary metals would be contracyclical to the industrial metals, like if there's economic trouble, You'll have less demand for copper and iron and all that stuff, but more demand for safe haven metals. And so they would move contracyclically or all in the opposite. Economy is doing great. We need more copper and everything, but we're not afraid. So we don't need safe havens. But the reality is that um, gold and silver correlate with copper and the other metals around 85 to 90% of the time. So that's what I'm thinking about. When I see a super cycle, it's like the whole sector has turned. And honestly, that is not a new phenomenon. People have started talking about this since last year after the COVID shutdowns and commodity prices shut up and people are talking about this. Uh, but, for, but from a super cycle perspective, I think this started in 2016. So we are well into this commodity super cycle. And I'm not calling it a top, I'm not saying it's done. These are like decade long cycles, but we're well into this round. I want to just focus on another thing too. And it's just like, you know, back in 2008 or 2007, um, that kind of signaled the end of the, the commodity cycle. Like I think oil touched about 140 bucks at the top and then it came back down and that actually triggered the entire basically finance. I don't want to say that was the cause, but it was almost like a leading indicator as to where the rest of the cycle was going to go for the next, I would say 13 years. So, um, I guess uh, no. I mean, no. I mean, yes, that did happen, but maybe you could think of it as a mini cycle within the long cycle because the commodities came back pretty quick. And particularly, uh, gold and silver came roaring back. Gold actually ended 2008 in the black. It was up by the end of the year because it came screaming back in December, um, and uh, oil took a while, but it it came back. I'm not an oil patch guy, so I don't remember, but it seems like it came back 2009, 2010. I don't know when it was, but it, it came back strong. Copper hit very high prices then as well after the crash. So there, there was, you could look at it as an interruption in the cycle would be one way to look at it. And actually, I think uh, 2020 and the COVID crash is pretty similar. This giant spike downwards in everything, and then it all comes roaring back not long afterwards. And here we are, you know, you know, less than a year later, you've got copper and oil, all these things come screaming back again. So you could see these things as interruptions of the long cycle. If you, I'm not uh, sure that actually helps us, but <laughs> that's the way it, I see it. it. It could be a leading, leading indicator of what's to come, but it might not be a cause and effect of that situation, right? If that makes sense. Well, uh, co correlation rather than causality. Or in terms of what do we do or how do we make use of it, I, I think the most useful takeaway is, should we be so lucky as to see another crash? Like if the taper talk actually turns into a market crash and everything, the babies get thrown out with the bathwater, everything goes on sale. I, as a speculator, I think that'd be fantastic. 
You know, I've got a lot of cash saved up exactly in case that happens. I have more cash than I normally do in my portfolio because I see the markets as fragile. And I, you know, for all the guidance and all the massaging that the powers that be have done to try to prepare markets to, you know, pretend to tighten, they could melt anyway. And if they do, these same experiences we're talking about tell us that everything will get whacked, including things that shouldn't, like gold and silver. And, and it's short term. They come bouncing back. Even if the other commodity, like if you have sustained economic weakness after a crash, obviously that's not good for industrial metals. And that's why copper and oil took longer to bounce back after the crash of 2008. But gold and silver came right back. And gold and silver came right back in, in March and April of 2020. And I think if we get a crash, I'm, I'm looking forward to you know, buying with both hands at that time. Especially in gold and silver. Do you think oh, the um, do you think that if they let's hypothetically say they taper, I mean they they have to because they've been saying they're going to do it, or else again they're it's just nothing but a lie. So let's say they taper, the market collapses. I mean they did it in two thousand eighteen. They had that the whole scenario where they tried to raise rates and everything, and that caused a whole hiccup in the market. And now here we are, twenty twenty one with um, uh, way worse liabilities, a way worse economic situation, political risk, social risk, and everything, do you think they'd be able to hold on to it or they're just going to revert back and just go right back to what they were doing? All right, another Powell pivot. Uh, you know, who knows? I mean, the, 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 most, the most honest answer here is that I've spent the better part of the last 20 years kicking rocks, looking at mines, and seeing which rocks turn into profitable mines. That really is my specialty. And people ask me about the economics and all this mm -hmm. other stuff, but I have to answer because you know I, yeah. I do have thoughts. Um, but I'm not actually an economist. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's an advantage. You know, some people tell me it is, but I, I just want to put that out there. You know, my opinions on what the Fed is going to do, I don't know if they're worth any more than the next guys. Uh, my opinions on what XYZ mining company has in the ground, I think they are worth more than most of the next guys. But to answer the question, not to dodge the bullet here, I think they will try to taper. I think they've painted themselves into that box. They've guided that so firmly that they could actually scare the market if they don't. And the market has pretty much blessed that. You know, They've talked about the taper, they've said it's coming and the market hasn't freaked out yet. So I think they'll try. And they've already guided from the minutes, we know they're talking 10, 15 mm -hmm. um, billion per month. You know, They'll try that. But, you know, but that still means it just it just kills me. In Washington speak, a decrease and an increase is called a cut. Even though it's still increasing, if you you know you have the budget increasing, this happens every year. We have these budget increases, and we decrease the increase and we call that a budget cut. This taper <laughs> thing is just like that. You know, we're gonna decrease how much more we're buying every month, and that's a cut, right? You know, we're gonna taper. So We'll see. I think they try. I think they may get away with one. But if, if it goes like clockwork, remember Powell's famous statement before the Powell pivot was, you know, it's going to be like machinery. It's, it's going to happen. I forgot this phrase, but it was something like it, it was automatic. It was on autopilot. That's what he said. He, he said it was on autopilot. So, you know, if the, if the markets start getting nervous and they're saying it's on autopilot, like it's coming whether you want it or not. I could see that sparking another pivot. Um, do they get there? Do they taper at all? I don't know. Um, my, my gut is that they don't get all the way there. My gut is that they start, they try. You know, there's still more nervousness around the edges. The economy is really not doing as great as, as some of the numbers suggest. We had that big disappointment in the September jobs number and so on. Um, so for whatever it's worth, my pure... Wild ass guess. Can I say that on TV? Is, um, is that they will probably backtrack. That, that we will see another pivot. That, that's my guess. To give to give credit to you just for what you just said in terms of your opinion, and everything. Like the way I think I see it, especially with terms of like the macro space, the commodities, and the kind of people that are outside of Wall Street but still very attentive to it, is they seem to have more of a free market. Austrian perspective of economics. So much more decentralized. So they look at things much more objectively. Whereas when you look at it from a central perspective, from like the Fed, the government, they apply Keynesian economics, which is much more state knows best, centralized type of framework. So the way they move their pieces is more like a stat statistician where everything is based on numbers rather than based on human behavior and sentiment. So, and also a, it's more of a refreshing perspective to get your outside the box 
take, you know, look at things. Well, thanks for saying that. And I, I hope it's outside the box. It, it might feel like amongst at least gold bugs out there, it's a bit of an echo chamber. But it, it, it's interesting. You know, I, I was just telling you about how I've come back from the New Orleans Investment Conference. And everybody there was pretty much, you know, in the hard money side. They're all free market oriented one way or the other. Uh, even, even the token dollar bull that was there, you know, he gets it. He's, he's not a big fan of big government either. But there was quite a bit of disagreement as to whether the next leg is going to be more inflation or deflation. Because if you're a critic of the state's handling of the crisis, if you're a critic of the powers that be, you know, it's reasonable to say that's going to cause more harm. We're going into a recession and those tend to be deflationary. I see mm. you have a cat helper there. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> no, dog, that's yeah. a dog. Yeah, it's my husky. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. With a name like Lobo, I have to love wolfy looking dogs. Um, so anyway, even amongst, you know, uh, market oriented economists, there's quite a bit of difference as to what happens next. Mm. And, and you can't just dismiss the, the deflation argument as just being something the Keynesians say. Um, you know, it, it makes some sense if, if the knock on effects, if there's more shutdowns or if the things that have, have broken the supply chains hurt the economy more, that would be deflationary. Uh, my feeling is that the printing press is the more powerful weapon and that if, if they actually, if we actually saw deflation, that would signal so much trouble for the powers that be that mm. they would open the money spigots even wider. Mm. So I'm not going to promise that there won't be a month or two or of deflation or, you know, some scary numbers out there. But my, my view is that if that happens, that only unleashes the tsunami of money even bigger and badder going forward. I want to end on one topic that I think is on everybody's mind, and that's obviously crypto. Um, it's obviously the, the general idea of crypto is decentralized. And I think everybody who is more on the Austrian economic side can agree uh, that it is actually, you know, it's an idea of freedom, decentralized monetary system, big on DeFi as well. Um, where what's your take on this i know that i think we can all agree on this in this you know interview or this chat that we're having right now that i find so fascinating that uh crypto is here to stay there's no question there's obviously going to be a lot of them that are going to be going to zero but i think it's pretty fair to say that bitcoin obviously has its place in society right now so i'm just curious to know what your take is on that space uh as it does kind of fall into the idea of uh you know freedom in in in, in a lot of in a lot of ways Sure. But I view the whole crypto phenomenon as, and, and I mean the cryptocurrency starting with Bitcoin, not just blockchain, as a market response to government mismanagement of the money supply. For anybody who, who understands, who's been paying attention, who's, who's looked at the money supply and, and how governments throughout all of history have mismanaged it, it's absolutely no surprise. And you expect mismanagement. And so the technology comes along that makes it possible to bring an alternative to the marketplace. It's a, it's a perfectly natural market response to a problem in this crucial thing, management of the money supply. So I'm all for it. On a theoretical basis, I, I, I see it as, as a market response. And also you know, in terms of which one we should use or how much it should be, I think the market should decide. I, I don't need to set the price of Bitcoin or anything else. I, if the market accepts it, the market values it, then that, you know, it's, it's kind of funny how people who have an Austrian perspective, who should know better, will sit there in all seriousness and say that, well, the price of silver should be this. Well, no, in a market, the price of something is whatever the buyer and seller agree on, not what you want it to be or what you wish it would be. So I'm, I'm quite willing to go that far with the cryptos and say, you know, let the market decide. I'm I would say it's less obvious to me that Bitcoin is here to stay. If there is a better mousetrap, you know, that can take over. And mm -hmm. I see, uh, I'm not an expert on this, but, you know, I see more actual real world applications taking root out there that are based on the Ethereum platform. And some of the other uh, more frictionless platforms are taking off now too. So I, I'm, I know that the Bitcoin maximalists think, you know, it's like the one ring that will bring them all and in the darkness, bind them in the end and the whole world will use Bitcoin only. Um, I'm not persuaded by that thesis. Mm. I, I can see where a better mousetrap could displace the first mover in the space. 
Um, at the end, I, the one thing I think very strongly or feel very strongly about is that it doesn't have to be Bitcoin versus crypto, I'm sorry, cryptos versus gold either. I think uh, even if cryptos survive government crackdowns, even if cryptos survive being declared illegal amongst all OECD participants and followers, which I think could happen. Mm -hmm. I think if that happens, the prices on the non-black market crater and people who have you know invested and are speculating in this i think they're at great risk of that if if these things are declared illegal and i think that's not a risk people should write off mm -hmm. the fact that the system bitcoin itself can survive a nuclear war you know as long as one hard drive somewhere still has the the ledger you know and in the future connectivity comes back it survives that doesn't mean that your money is going to be safe in the interim or for whatever years. So I, I, I think it's a mistake to dismiss these things. And what I'm saying is, therefore, there's a legitimate place even for the most ardent crypto advocates for physical money that doesn't have to be plugged into anything. On the flip side, you know, even for the most ardent gold bugs and silver bugs, there's a case to be made for these distributed assets and electronically transferable assets. I actually think that if the world were to adopt a new post-fiat, you know, money system, that it would involve digital forms of gold because, you know, who wants to carry a coin purse around? Hmm. Nobody even wants to carry paper in their wallet anymore, let alone a medieval coin purse. Um, and farther ahead, if we have an interplanetary society, you know, shipping your gold to Mars would be really expensive whereas some digital token makes a lot more sense. So I actually see the market evolving in the future um, to involve real tangible forms of money and the, the best, most survivable, most useful digital forms of money. And I, I don't need to say who's going to win. I'm happy to just let the market decide. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's gonna be very interesting to see how it unfolds. Just because again, it's still relatively new, and every day mm -hmm. that goes by, it's kind of testing the time uh, variable that gold has essentially been able to do for the last, I don't know, ten centuries. But um, there's a near-term litmus test. Sorry, I know we're trying to wrap up here, but no, I'll no, give go you ahead, go ahead, term please go ahead. If we do get another market crash, not, I mean, or if we get another market crash soon, there'll always be another one. Mm -hmm. But if in the next year or so, the experiments with tightening or talking about tightening cause a real market crash like last March or more like 2008, like a more real, not just flash crash, but a real market crash and retrenchment. Let's see how Bitcoin does at that mm -hmm. time. If yep. it has monetary safe haven yep. status, if that's really why people own it, it should like gold maybe wobble a bit, but do well and take off in that mm -hmm. kind of environment. If that was, the yeah. most money in there is just for speculative, it's just people you know, buying because they hope for the greater fool to come along and pay more in the future, it should tank and stay down in such mm -hmm. a crash. So there's a, there's a you know, little bit of hopefully useful, actionable item. Watch for that. See how it does. It'll tell us a lot. Actually, it's, it's something we've been talking about, actually, as a, there's certain, because if you look at more typical cycles, you know, you have to look for certain correlated behaviors and there's certain things that have not yet been experienced by the crypto space that need to be experienced to see how it truly holds throughout certain cycles. Does it, does it survive a deflation? Does it survive debts, uh, a debt destruction? Does it survive market crashes? Does it survive government crackdown? Does it survive if there's a Bitcoin 2.0, you know, there's certain risks that Absolutely. need to. Yeah. Right. And if you, if you think of the March correction as this COVID aberration, we can kind of set that aside for the moment. The last real economic crisis and during economic crisis was 2008. That's pre-Bitcoin. Mm, exactly. So it'll exactly. be interesting to see how it, yeah. how it does. Lobo, thanks so much for coming on. There's been so much wisdom here that uh, mm -hmm. Nick and I are going to obviously look back on and be like, this is a very interesting conversation. But um, we're really grateful, really grateful. Re really, really grateful to have you on here. Uh, where, where can the listeners find you? I took the time to dig into a little bit deeper on some of these issues. These are important issues. And, you know, I often just get asked for this soundbite, you know, what's your what's your headline? Uh, so I appreciate you guys taking the time to dig into this stuff with me. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, but like I said, man, you, you, there's, there's a lot of people that we respect, that we, that we listen to, that live in an ecosystem where they're much more objective about the way they look at markets, and 
as millennials, as younger guys, we're just trying to pass on that information and try to, you know, have a better understanding of where to look without being given a specific message that fits a certain narrative or a certain, you know, a, sp- a specific special interest group. And also, again, like I said, we, we appreciate you coming on and we enjoy these conversations with people like yourself. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lobo. Thanks very much for coming on, Lobo. Guys, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>